Welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a new hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we are in sunny Seattle. That's right, it's 55 degrees and sunny here in Seattle, Washington, and we're sitting in FMS's office with the associate principal that leads the charge here on the West Coast, Kevin Ferry. Kevin, welcome to the Light Pod. It's awesome to see you. Thanks for taking some time to catch up with us today. Happy to be here, Sam. Tell me, um, you know, once you get out to Seattle, it seems like uh, you're, you're a CU guy, you love lighting, and uh, took a tour around the world. What put you on the West Coast? What made you land here? A uh, special lady in my life. I met her in New York working at FMS there. Uh, she was working for a sister company and uh, decided she was heading to the West Coast, and I figured I liked her enough to follow her along. Well, it's always nice when you find someone special in your life, and it's cool that you guys decided, let's go to Seattle. Talk to me a little bit about how, when you moved west, you brought FMS with you. Uh, originally, I didn't. Um, it was a hard decision to leave New York. I really liked the city and working with FMS. Um, and so when I came out here, I left the company. I worked as a lighting designer at a different firm in Seattle, enjoyed what I did there. But my wife and I moved to Ireland for a year, which gave us a good time to sort of reevaluate things and figure out what the next step was going to be. And when we came back, uh, I worked as a rep for a little while, but didn't think that was a long-term thing. And I had always stayed in touch with Charles and a few other people from FMS back in New York. Long story short, I reached out to them, uh, really looking to see if they had any ideas of who I should talk to, things I should be looking at on the West Coast. And we decided to open an office. Uh, it's something Charles had been wanting to do for a little while, and we felt like the, the mix was right and the time was right, so we decided to go for it. That's pretty cool. So did you get to come out and start that all on your own? Uh, I wouldn't say it was all on my own. There were a lot of people behind the scenes in New York that really were supportive and, and led the way or helped lead the way to to make it a reality. We started on the first day with me and one other person and have really been focusing on trying to grow the work, grow the office, grow the practice, and make it something special on the West Coast, just like it is in New York. And I think that's really cool that FMS has said, let's just keep this all at one company and let's give ourselves an opportunity to be kind of all across the country, support people where they want to be and, and also find that talent and uh, absorb maybe different inspiration, different uh, perspective and personalities as well. Yeah, I think one of the big things was trying to make sure it was co one company and one identity, not an East Coast, West Coast thing, not a satellite office. Uh, anyone that starts here, we actually send back to a New York office for three weeks to get indoctrinated. New York boot camp. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is great because they get a sense of what the heart and soul and the foundation of the firm is. You know, Jules Fisher and Paul Morantz are still in the office almost every day. So I think it really gives them a perspective before they start working here and, and helps with some of that identity and making sure it is one company and it's not a team or a person in New York. It's a firm that you're hiring and all of the experience that comes with that. You know, you've been in this business for almost 20 years. Uh, for the better part of it, you've been practicing as a lighting designer. Fisher Morant Stone, Charles Stone being the, the third principal who's out here in, in your Seattle office with us just, just today. It sounds like he travels around the world a lot as well. Yeah. There's a foundation behind 
this company and and where it all started and like you said everybody goes back to new york how old is fms and what has fms done to create lighting design and employ almost over 30 people now yeah it started in 1971 when paul morantz joined jules fisher in Jules's basement. Um, you know, I mean, it's almost a tech startup in somebody's garage, except it was in Jules's basement. Over the years, the firm grew. Charles joined in 1983. There have been a number of people that have come through the FMS doors in the world of lighting design. Some of them are still around in FMS. Many are still in design, but have gone on to open their own companies. You know, there is a, a little bit of a legacy, I would say, in terms of people that have come through FMS. And it's a legacy that we're hopefully continuing opening the office in Seattle and continuing to expose younger designers to what we do and lighting design and design in general. And when you guys look at what you're doing, uh, you're trying to obviously create a fun culture and put people together, even though they're across the country. Talk to me a little bit about what the history of FMS is and and why boot camp's important. I think it has to do with the culture that you're talking about. You know, I think we can find people that want to do lighting design or people that could come in and draw things in Revit or AutoCAD or whatever it is, but we want people that are passionate about lighting, passionate about design. And that's a hard thing to teach. That's something that somebody really just has to have. Uh, and we do our best to cultivate that and support it and help them grow within that. Um, and I, so I think that's, that's really where some of the history comes from. I mean, when Paul and Jules started, they were working with big name architects, working on big name projects. You know, a lot of it in New York, working on Studio 54. Paul has a long time working relationship with the late IM Pei. And so there's this history of of big name projects and big name architects. That has changed a little and morphed over the years as the firm has grown. You know, I wouldn't say we're a boutique lighting design firm, but we do do some more boutique type work, but we also do large scale projects from the Hong Kong airport to the Burj Khalifa uh, and everything in between. Wait, wait, the Burj isn't that big. It's, it's no. 110 story. Oh wait, no, that's the Sears Tower, whatever it's called in Chicago. And I, the Burj is huge, but I heard that they're gonna try and build something. Have you heard about this? They're gonna build something bigger in Dubai that's not actually a building they want to like support it with cables yeah it's crazy uh, well there was supposed to be the one in Saudi Arabia but it's on hold now but maybe coming back and then I think yeah the, the, it's a Calatrava spire or tower or something in Dubai that's supposed to be taller FMS is not a boutique lighting design firm by any means in the sense that you're mainstream you're working on big buildings you guys have some pretty incredible projects that are marquee but you're doing a lot that's not that too, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, historically, about a third of our work is residential work, single family houses, usually fairly wealthy clients, but it's, you know, it's single family, high-end residential work. Uh, we do a lot of small scale, high-end retail work, hospitality work, things like that. And then there are the bigger corporate campuses or transportation projects, but it really is a good mix of size and scale. So we might have a project that's, that's 10,000 square feet and we might have a project that's a million square feet and something that's got a budget of a few hundred thousand dollars and something that has a budget that you can't even count to. And you guys are lighting designers, but we all know that lighting design is a part of the design process as it comes together. And it all starts with architecture and concepts and, and a size and a mass. And then it gets detailed out. Where did you find your first interest for design? And then how did that lead you to lighting? 
I'd always been interested in buildings as a kid and growing up. I'm sure that's not unique, but it was, it was, I was always captivated when I saw a construction site or uh, blueprints or something like that. You know, I was always interested in science as well and found my way into lighting design. Being an architectural engineering student, we also had a little bit of our curriculum that was in the architecture program. And so that that really was where I got probably the biggest exposure to quote unquote design um, and understanding some more of the theory that goes into it. Some of the thinking that comes with design, not, not the engineering side of it that my program was. And so it was pretty interesting to start to see how the technology and the science behind the engineering mixed with the design, the philosophy, the theory, uh, the aesthetics of that. Not not just in architecture, but in art history, art, music, things like that, that really start to look at design and the creative process as a whole. Do you think that there was an opportunity for you to learn about other forms of design? Or did this just happen to be what gravitated to the top? You mean in terms of lighting? Yeah. I'll tell you a little story. We'll see if it's interesting or not. Um, my mom was very concerned that me and my two sisters knew what we were going to major in when we went off to college. And so she sent us into Chicago to take aptitude tests. I think it was over two days. And you do all sorts of things that make no sense at the time. So they'll play a musical note for you and you have a keyboard in front of you and you have to try and replicate the note that you heard. They'll project, you'll have a piece of paper with a random array of dots on it, and they'll project on the screen for 10 seconds how those dots are supposed to be connected. They take it away and you have to replicate that. So all sorts of things like this. And at the end, they come back and they tell you, okay, uh, you're basically tone deaf, so maybe don't become a musician. Or you're terrible with your hands, so surgery, surgeon's probably not a good idea. But uh, you're good with numbers, you have good sense of spatial relationship, um, so maybe you want to be an accountant, maybe you want to be an architect, you know. So they, they start to urge you away from certain things and push you towards others. And through this, I found architectural engineering, and through that, I found lighting design. So I feel like my path was sort of, I don't want to say predetermined, but it was sort of a calculated way that I got to finding lighting and really getting into lighting design in that aspect. You know, growing up as a kid, I was always fairly creative. I still really like making things um, and working with my hands. Were you a Crayola box of crayons or a, sh or a uh, what, what were the markers called? Crayola markers, right? Well, I was more of a, uh, were they Mr. Scent or, you know, the ones that the red one smelled <laughs> like strawberry. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, Pink smelled like bubble gum. Yeah. Black smelled like uh, licorice. Yeah. Though there really still today is nothing like opening up a fresh box of Crayolas and getting that nice waxy smell. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But no, I, would, I was more of a marker guy. Um, so, you know, I think design, design in some sense was always there. And I do think there were opportunities. I, I was certainly exposed to it in other avenues, both at school and just through reading and seeking other things out. But I'd say in terms of becoming a professional or, or becoming a professional who's involved in design, I really got into that through the whole lighting process. And now that you've been practicing as a designer for almost 20 years, um, you've been able to kind of hone in on your creative process as a lighting designer. But as a lighting designer, you're doing so much more than just designing with light. You're a part of a design team and uh, working with an architect. An uh, architect typically is a, a, a main client of yours, if, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. 
talk to me a little bit about what you feel like the design landscape looks like today. It's interesting. I, Having been doing it for about 20 years, I can say for better or worse now that I'm old enough to have seen things change. Things today seem to be accelerated to a pace where things have to be everybody is expecting things so much quicker and when you say so much quicker what does that mean well i guess i'm comparing it to what it would have been like uh 10 years ago or even when i started right we would have a deliverable and we would send it to the architect on a cd that's a compact disc that's correct. So at you know the end of the day, Thursday, you would actually have to burn this information to the CD to put it in the FedEx envelope so that it could go out and the architect could get it on Friday for the deadline. And then you wouldn't hear from them for a week or two because they would be incorporating your information and all of that. Now with file sharing and email and text messaging, um, things are so much quicker. It's almost on demand, right? People you don't send that CD to the client anymore. You just post something on on a file transfer site and it's instantaneous. We all have computers in our pockets now, right? And so I want to go on vacation, but that's not convenient for my client. So they send me an email and they expect to get an answer. Things just, the turnaround time, right, is quicker. Somebody sends you a drawing and says, hey, give me the lighting back. They, you know, they expect that in a day. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but that's that's part of the way that the landscape has changed or is changing is that that turnaround time people are expecting things to happen so much quicker and i think revit is a big part of that in our industry right people are sharing things in a model so sometimes some of those conversations that we may have been having in an architect's office over a roll of trace paper are happening on a webex or go to meeting or whatever your platform of choice is and people are looking at the same screen and flying through a model and it's just it's just different but, um, and, and I think in some ways it's really good and it's allowing conversations to happen earlier in the process. And in other ways, I think it's bad because I think some of those conversations aren't given, uh, you know, the true design conversations aren't given the amount of time or the attention that they probably need or deserve. Well, it's undoubtedly true that things have definitely sped up and there's not as much of an opportunity to have a conversation on the front end to the capacity that you want and things move at a faster pace. But surely there's something that's come out of that that has been able to benefit design. Talk to me a little bit about that. I think one of the biggest benefits is <laughs> the the demand that that change has put on us to become more efficient in what we do. Now, that's maybe more about the bottom line of our business than design, but spinning it in terms of design, I think I would say it's created a, a demand for rapid ideation. You don't have a week or a month to put together your thoughts or your concepts and share those with the architect. You have to be quick on your feet, I'll say, but I'm not sure that's the best words, but an architect may send you a model, they may send you a rendering, they may send you a sketch, whatever it is, and they want a reaction back relatively quickly. And so we've had to figure out a way internally that we can 
come together as a group and produce those ideas and share them quickly with the architect. So I think the conversations are still happening. I certainly know that we have them in our office and we're talking as a studio about what our design approach is going to be for a project, for a problem. And I'm sure those conversations are happening in the architect's office as well. But the quick turnaround has really forced us to, I'd say it's focused the effort to be uh, more intense and more uh, direct. You're forced to come up with these ideas um, rapidly, come up with different ideas, and come up with a compelling reason for why you're doing it, right? It's not just we're creating options, but we're trying to tell a story. How do we ideate those things? How do we come up with different ideas? How do we create those options? How do we share them with the team to move the whole design forward and move it all to a better place? Yeah, I think that's super interesting. Ultimately, you're being pushed to be more efficient, but still be creative, find the synergies with the design team, exercise your ability to execute on what good lighting is. But the time constraints have definitely made things a little bit more challenging. I tell you what, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what matters in design in 2020 and how you're executing on that. Sounds good. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, The Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a new hub for ideas, education, and a little entertainment where you can learn primarily with video-based content. Check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I dot com. And welcome back to The Light Pod. Kevin and I were just catching up a little bit about what design means in 2020, what matters and what's important. You know, Kevin, I look around the town of Seattle and there's a lot that's been built here and you have inevitably had an opportunity to work on a lot of that. But as you mentioned, technology has created an environment where you do have to work faster and more efficient. And also there's the technology that you practice with every day, which is the LED, the light emitting diode. And it's become so mainstream to the point where there's a lot out there in the marketplace today People think they maybe know everything there is to know, but we know that at FMS, there's a history here of pride in practicing lighting design, really studying things and getting into it. What matters in design in in 2020 to you at FMS and your team when it comes to creating that wow, that sparkle? I would say quality. Not only from the the pieces that you're talking about, the LEDs that are in the light fixtures that we use in our designs, we want a space to be a high quality space. We want a building to be a high quality building. I don't want to say that we've ever gotten away from quality, but I think there's a focus coming back to quality and what what that really means. You mentioned there's a lot going on in Seattle. I think we still have the most cranes of any U.S. city. I think Toronto still beats us in North America. Yeah, it's the new uh, state bird here. And a, a lot of those are residential buildings, apartment buildings, for rent buildings. They're not condos. But one of the changes we've started to see recently is that the developers are no longer looking to make something that's nice enough that they can get a good rent for and then move on from that building if they want. We're seeing developers that need to go back to quality to differentiate the product that they're bringing to the market from 
either what's already here and existing or other new buildings. You know, one way they could do that is hiring a big name architect to design the building. Hopefully that means other consultancies like ours also come on board and get to offer quality in terms of what we design and what we can deliver. But I think I think the quality people, you know, we were talking about podcasts in general and what would make somebody listen to one or what would make somebody turn one off. The comment there was quality too, right? You, you can, I'd like to think that maybe I'm bringing something to the table here, but if you don't have quality, the content better be pretty darn good to get people interested, to get people to pay top dollar for that apartment, um, to get people to listen to that podcast. But when you, when you have quality, not to say that the content can suffer then, but I think quality really drives a lot of things. And then, you know, the content helps to support that. A quality building in Seattle can be supported by quality lighting design and quality lighting products. So I think I think it all goes hand in hand when you start getting back to the quality of it all. And when you look at the quality of a design and that's really what matters and that's what shines at the end of the day. Talk to me a little bit about how it's the quality of design holistically as much as it is each individual design trade, design sub, the interiors, the architecture, the lighting design, the landscape design, so on and so forth. I think you really will notice it if it's not holistic. Um, You could have a team put together of all world-renowned, world-recognized design practices, architecture, interior design, landscape, lighting. You could have the best tradespeople working on it and constructing it. But I think if all of that stuff doesn't go together from the beginning, things will start to stick out. If you had, you know, a neoclassical architectural building with super, super minimal, super clean, super white interiors. Okay, that could be intentional. That could be a design statement that you're trying to make, but it also could be a little jarring in terms of the juxtaposition of those two styles going together. So I think I think it really starts early on with all of the, the different team members working together and figuring out what that design vision is and working throughout the course of the project to make sure it all meshes together in a holistic way. And again, whether that's one uniform idea or if there are a few different stylistic options that are taken. But I think I think just making sure everybody's working together so that it all ties together, it all comes together and is holistic at the end of the day. Sure. There's a fabric for that project. Right. Yeah. And and there's an opportunity for that fabric to morph and to reshape itself, maybe be cut and sewn and, and repatched. But well, at and, the end and, of the day. And I think too, one of the things that we really try and get to at the beginning of the project is what is what is the concept? Sure, there may be more than one, but we really and I think the most successful projects that we've worked on and probably the highest quality projects are the ones where that concept you can still point to 10 years down the road after it's been built. You can say this was our idea at the beginning of the project and we held on to it throughout the entire course of the project. And that doesn't mean that something wasn't value engineered. That doesn't mean the design team didn't change something throughout the course of the process or the project. But we all, not just the lighting designers, not just the architects, but everybody on the team held on to that concept and made it, you know, progress it all the way through the design to something that was finished and realized and you can point to and, and hopefully will stand up to the test of time. And taking that idea to make sure that it comes to fruition, the process of design has definitely evolved and we touch on that just a little bit, but I want to circle back to it one more time. You've got an opportunity to take a team and create something. 
that team has to get it done. What matters at the end of the day is the high quality of design. Talk to me a little bit about what that team looks like today. For us, it looks like anywhere from two to four people working on it. And we have we have great people here working on everything that we do. In fact, they, they're probably the ones you should be talking to because they're all passionate about lighting. They're all passionate about design. They're all passionate about creating the best project that we and they can for our clients. Looking bigger picture, we want to work with architects that see a vision, see have a passion, see a purpose for lighting in their buildings. And that, that goes to interior designers, that goes to landscape architects, that goes to graphic designers. Um, you know, the whole team holistically trying to work together and, and having those conversations, talking about design, talking about what the space could be, asking questions that might push the process further along to a better place. We're working on a project right now down in Portland and we've, uh, we've been down there 15 times maybe. And I would say the first eight to 10 times we were down there, we weren't talking much about lighting. These were technically lighting meetings but they were really design conversations. And in some ways we were almost more of an architectural critic than a lighting designer and looking at their design and asking them questions and having them ask us questions about if what they were doing made sense. Is there anything that we saw that we would change to make the space better suited for lighting or ways that we could enhance the architecture better if they would simply revise a detail in this way or change a ceiling height a little bit here or move a wall there. It's It was a really interesting experience to go to a lighting meeting and we many of these we did not bring any material to. We just showed up and listened and talked and you know we drew while we were there. It's, it's a really great team and those meetings were the architect, the interior designers, the graphic designers, the signage and wayfinding consultants, sometimes the client. Um, but it was, it was a really collaborative meeting where all of these different disciplines are talking about the project, the design of the project. And we're asking questions that have nothing to do with lighting. And the graphic designer is asking a question about lighting and the architect's asking a question about wayfinding. And so it's this interesting conversation of people that all care about design, but are all playing in everybody else's swimming pools but it's done in a way or with a desire or a goal to make the project at the end of the day the highest quality project that it can be. And if everybody's swimming in each other's pools, not to go crazy here, but you know, everybody loves their, you know, their hot tub at 104 degrees versus 101 degrees, but you get this opportunity to kind of share experiences and ideas with people. Do you feel that by having a collaborative team that ultimately is what can create your successful designs today? I think so. We at FMS, we have people with all different backgrounds. We have people like myself with an architectural engineering background. We have people um, with theater backgrounds, with interior design backgrounds, industrial design, um, photography. Charles is an English major. Um, But again, everybody that is in our company is passionate about design and everybody uh, really continues to grow and develop that passion and their knowledge of design every day. You know, I have 
books on my desk, one about Caravaggio, some about graphic design, some about typefaces. So I think everybody really looks for inspiration everywhere, whether it's uh, in art, brewing beer like I like to do. So I think, you know, I think that collaboration, that that desire to learn and grow and just um, be inspired is is really what you want. You want to work with people that inspire you and can inspire others. And, you know, we want that here and with the, the various design firms that we work with. So when it comes down to it, what's going on today is an accelerated design process. But fundamentally, what's always mattered, the quality and the collaboration has never changed. And while there's tools out there to help you work with that team, ultimately, no member of that team can be replaced. And they're probably almost more important than ever. I would agree with that. And I would say the the change that we've seen and the speed that everything happens with now puts more of a focus and demand on the need for that collaboration. Well, I'd say that's pretty simple, isn't it? Collaboration is key. Kevin, I appreciate your time and talking about what's important in design in 2020. Can you believe we made it? We're to the next decade. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, I've only been to Seattle twice. It's been sunny both times. So I will come back and visit you again, but I promise you I'm checking the forecasts. And if there's any clouds on that little weather ticker, I might have to reschedule. It's been good catching up with you. You too. Thanks, Sam. Yep. Talk to you soon. See you, Kevin. All right. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember the best way to stay in the loop is to go back to wherever you listen to this and click follow or subscribe. Never miss a beat with the light pod where we interview fascinating people, dynamic people, and really talk about what's going on in the world of lighting, how problems can be solved, and what might be on the horizon. Until then, cheers. Cheers.